Well, good morning, good morning, good morning. Welcome to the Vineyard. If this is your first time here, you are loved, and you are welcome here. If it's not your first time here, you're still loved, and you are still welcome here. But especially those who are here for the first time, we're blessed to have you with us. We're going to be continuing a series we started at the beginning of the year here uh, about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, what it looks like to follow uh, in his steps. Let me get this going here. Um, and we've kind of built it around this moment when Jesus is speaking to those uh, gathered around him, and he, and he talks about entering through the narrow gate. He describes a broad gate and a wide uh, path that leads to destruction, but this little narrow path, a little harder to walk on, uh, that leads to righteousness and salvation. It's his way, but it's the harder way, hard but, but worth it. Uh, that's kind of what the series is as we get the year going here. Um, but... Uh, Last Sunday, we talked about uh, the wide road itself. Here's the uh, source verse. It's in uh, Matthew 7, verses uh, 13 and 14. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad to the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through that gate. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. Last week, we talked about that broad gate a little bit and its uh, association with sin and destruction uh, but even still, the good news uh, of reckoning with our sin and coming to a better understanding of the depth and the breadth of God's love and mercy because we understand our sin. Today we're going to talk about that narrow road uh, and its implications and the call to holiness. But first, let's uh, begin with prayer. Father God, we uh, thank you for this space to gather. We thank you for the time to gather together, for the number of uh, provisions uh, present in our life to make a moment like this even possible on a Sunday, God. Pray that you'd make us good stewards of those gifts and those provisions in our life. Make us good students and followers of you, our teacher. Lord, help us to recognize your voice as you speak to us. We pray that you would plant the seeds of truth within us. Uh, today, I've got a message, I've got a plan here, God, but ultimately that doesn't mean anything if you're not with us and if you're not speaking, God. So come Holy Spirit. Uh, speak to us of your way, your path. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So if we can see the hard realities and temptations of sin in the wide road, what do we see in the narrow way? I think one of the most important things we find in that call is the call to righteousness, the call to holiness. There is a moment in the Apostle Peter's first letter that really brings this call front and center, and I want to start us there today. So this is from 1 Peter 1, 13 to 16. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. I was reminded as I read that passage uh, a couple weeks ago uh, that I have found that commandment to be hugely intimidating. I don't know any of you who have read that in the past uh, and, and the association there. First of all, the idea of being holy kind of carries with it its own kind of assumed meanings. But then to compare anything that we might do to what God is doing uh, is pretty intimidating. I don't know why, but I've always associated holiness with perfection with flawlessness, perpetual excellence, without any failure ever. And I have never lived a day of my life in that state. 
So to be commanded to live that way always uh, is hugely intimidating. I could never be the holy, be that holy short of Jesus' second coming or the complete remaking of the earth, which has not yet happened. Uh, I've got too many sins and too many flaws. Um, so I've never quite known what to do in my life uh, with a commandment like that one. But that's kind of my assumption about what that means. I don't know if any of you came into the room today with your own concept of what holiness means. It's one of these important words in our faith that we kind of yes and amen in the moment. But if you really stop and ask yourself, what does that mean? It can get kind of complicated on us. What does God mean by being holy? Now, I confess I'm going to do something today that I will try not to do too often. We're going to do a little bit of a word study here. Um, the seminary does something to you. It warps your brain. Uh, it, it, it warped my brain in ways I never thought it would. Um, it has made me fall in love with ancient languages. I am not great with them, but I have come to respect and realize that if we in our faith are going to be commanded by God to do a thing, and that thing is represented with a word, it's good to remember that originally that word wasn't written in English. It wasn't written by 21st century Western thinkers, but it's an important word. So sometimes it's worthwhile to go a little bit deeper and do a little bit of homework so I hope you'll have grace and patience with your brother here as I try to do a little brief exploration of what this word means because it's going to set the stage for the rest of our conversation here today. So we've got this commandment to be holy. And this comes to us in 1 Peter in the New Testament. We're not going to look at this in English. We're going to look at this in the Greek. So we're going to have a look here. And my remote's going to work for me. There it is. Oh, and we skipped it. There we are. All right, so... Uh, hagioi. Hagioi is the word here, or agioi, depending on the pronunciation method you're using. And it doesn't mean, you'll notice, perfection or flawlessness. Uh, it, what it means is to be set apart by or for God, to be sacred. It comes from the original word hagos, which means sacred. That's a very different meaning. Uh, but the good news right out of the gate is it doesn't mean the scary perfection that I had once feared in my life, and I hope that's immediately uh, a relief for us. Now, Peter, when he uses this word, he's actually referencing, he's a good Jewish man, he's a student of the scriptures that he would have had, the Old Testament at the time, he's actually pointing back to an earlier use of this concept that would have been in yet another language. It would have been in ancient Hebrew uh, and the earlier languages. In Leviticus chapter 11, 44, this is what he's referencing, where God commands his people, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. So that's not going to be in Greek anymore. Let's have a look at what the Hebrew is. And if that looks like an alien language to you, that was my first experience in seminary as well. This is much harder than Greek. But here we have these amazing tools where we can look these things up. Uh, but the definition we tend to get initially kind of moves us back into scary territory like God, an angel, a saint. Well, that's starting to sound like perfection and divinity and things that I have no hope of doing. Um, but thankfully, there's another word used right, right next to it that you heard uh, to, uh, let's see here, let's back up real quick, consecrate yourselves. And in Hebrew, in English, those are two very different words, but in Hebrew, they have the exact same root. And the root in Hebrew, this is being laggy today, as you see on the right, the root of these, both of these two words is the exact same word, and even to the Hebrew people of the ancient Near Eastern culture, it too meant to set apart or to be consecrated unto the Lord. So again, this is good news. We've got kind of a firm foundation to begin with. We can step away from the scary notions of having to be perfect at all times. That's not 
what God is commanding us when he commands us to be holy. Instead, he's talking about being set apart. And this, I think, is a notion we can grasp at intuitively. I'll use a silly example for the moment, but in your household, picture your household, and think about all the different spaces and rooms in that house. There are different rooms that are set apart in your home for certain purposes. They have a certain intention and design. They're meant for doing certain things and only certain things. An example of this might be your kitchen. There are certain things you do in the kitchen in your home that you don't do in other places in your home. It's set apart for a purpose. Among those purposes are preparing food and storing food. That's something you do in your kitchen. Another room that has a very specific purpose in your home, your bathroom. There are certain things you do in your bathroom that we hope you do not do in other rooms in your house. The things that are dedicated to your kitchen probably ought not be done in your bathroom. And the things that are done in your bathroom almost certainly should not be done in your kitchen. This idea of having places and spaces and things that are set apart, that's intuitive to us. But the idea of holiness is a very specific kind of setting apart. It's being set apart by God for God's purposes. That is what holiness is. That's the concept of holiness that we're going to kind of latch on to today. Thus endeth uh, our language study for the day. Let us now stand for the benediction. So we're going to get into this good news territory now. We're working with these concepts uh, that are not anywhere near as intimidating, this set-apartness. That's what holiness speaks about. But on, um, in the commandment that we've gone through here earlier, be holy as I am holy, God instructs his people to be set apart uh, by him. There is a way, there is a broad way that we've been talking about in this series that leads to destruction. But you and I and each of us, we are called to be set apart for a different way. We're called to be set apart by God and for his purpose. Now, God is ultimately holy. He is entirely other. He is the most set apart. And in a competition, we're not going to be any more holy than God is. But thankfully, God isn't asking impossible things of us here. He tends to ask the possible. It is in God's nature, it is in his way, to help us any time he asks something heavy of this like us. And it's a good thing. He must help us. There are aspects of this sanctifying journey towards holiness that we're on, our, that we're on together that we simply cannot do on our own. But he doesn't ask us to do that. He asks the possible things of us, and it is he who does the impossible. As you study the word and get more familiar with those things that reoccur again and again, you'll start to notice things. Things will stand out to you. One of the things that has started to stand out to me as a source of humor is how simple God's instructions often are. Even for those people we think are like the superheroes uh, of the Bible. There's a story of Gideon. If you've never read it before, you'll find it in the book of Judges, chapter 6. What did Gideon do? Well, he and a few hundred people march around a massive fortress. And uh, they, play, uh, they march around a massive fortress and bring it down like to destruction, down to rubble. But when you actually read the story carefully and look for what it is that Gideon himself does and what the people actually do themselves, they play a bunch of musical instruments and they bang pots and pans together. It's kind of silly. That's not uh, a particularly conventional military strategy, as I understand military strategies, but I'll tell you something, it's doable. It's something that any one of us here today could do, and that was what God called them to do in obedience. The raising of the whole fortress was impossible for those 300 people, but in their obedience, God did something remarkable. He only asked the possible of them. My favorite version of this do the possible 
example is Moses. Moses is like the Marvel superhero uh, of the Old Testament. This is the guy who's ripping oceans in half and turning sticks into snakes and producing water out of rocks. It's pretty, pretty remarkable. Let's see if I've got this. I thought I would highlight those three particular miracles and again have a close look at what Moses actually was asked to do. So you're going to find these in Exodus 7, 14 and Numbers 20. Then the Lord told Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, perform a miraculous sign, then you are to say to Aaron, this is, remember, Moses was a massive introvert. He didn't like public speaking. And the Lord was gracious with Moses. So God spoke to Moses and he gave Moses Aaron and Aaron did some of the public speaking and things. So this is God passing these instructions on to Aaron through Moses. Take your staff and throw it in front of Pharaoh. That's it. You got a walking stick, throw it at Pharaoh. That's all you've got to do. And then the Lord made that stick turn into a serpent. He was asked to do the possible. Throw your stick on the ground. The next one, the parting of the Red Seas. What did Moses actually have to do here? Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and we're done. That was Moses' part. How many people in the room can do this over an ocean? Totally possible. All that night, the Lord pushed back the sea with a strong east wind and turned the sea into dry ground, and the water was divided. And lastly here, producing water out of a rock. Pretty darn impossible. And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his stick. A lot of work with the walking stick. Walking stick's an important tool in the Old Testament. Struck it twice, and water came out abundantly and provided for all God's people. Now, this one's interesting. Something weird happens in this story because that's not what God asked uh, Moses to do, and he gets in trouble for it later on. What God asked Moses to do is actually even simpler than this. It did not require the essential walking stick. He instructed Moses to talk to the rock. Go up to the rock and tell it to give you water. That was it. Any one of us in this room with the power of speech could have done the possible in that miraculous moment. I wonder sometimes, because Moses decided to hit it with a stick instead, if he doubted in that moment that it could really be that simple. Really? All my people are dying of thirst, and you're asking me to go talk to a rock about it. I wonder if he felt like he needed to do something more dramatic, or maybe the people wouldn't take him seriously if he walked up to a rock and started asking it for water. But there you have it. Everything that Moses did that seems miraculous to us, the Marvel superhero of the Old Testament, all of it entirely doable for us. It is God who does the impossible. This is good news. Let's look at another example of God asking the possible. Um, let's go to Exodus 20, a key moment. Um, let me just make sure I haven't missed anything here. Well, staying with the Old Testament for a moment, as God speaks to his people about who they are to be and how they are to be, the possible things for how they are to be set apart, we find these possible choices often have a common theme to them. Let's go to Exodus 20 as a key moment in God's covenantal process with his people, where we get the famous Ten Commandments. And there's a commonality here that I don't know that I really noticed earlier in my journey, uh, and I wonder if you'll spot it. Let's have a look at it together. So I've paraphrased here. You're going to find these commandments in Exodus 20. It's a more extensive passage than I've got for you, but I've kind of tried to summarize it here for the purpose of this exercise, and I'm just going to read them to you right now. See if you can spot a, spot a common thread that, that is existent in all Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods. You shall not make or worship idols. You shall not misuse the name of God. You shall keep the Sabbath holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. 
You shall not steal. You shall not lie. You shall not covet what your neighbor has. Any guesses at a common theme here? There's probably a few. Well, yeah, this is, this is a directive to the individual. You're responsible for making these choices, these decisions. Absolutely. Well, first of all, I'd like to point out that there is no commandment here to be flawless at all times and perfect in every way. Praise God for that. That's not the commandment. What's interesting about these is every one of these commandments in some way has to do with the treatment of other people. They are not commandments to be the mightiest people, the strongest, the most brilliant, the quickest on the uptake. They're not commandments to be perfect. They're commandments to do with relationship, every single one of them. Now, a couple of them that may seem like a stretch, but I'll make the defense here in a moment. The first few of them there, you shall have no other God, you shall not make an, or worship idols, you shall not misuse my name. These commandments have to do with our relationship with God. I'll skip four for a moment. The next mm, math, six commandments uh, are all to do with how we treat and honor other people. Every single one of them. The fourth commandment, I would argue, is a commandment about how we treat ourselves. It's a commandment about Sabbath rest. An essential part of creation before the fall, before it all went sideways, God himself participated in this rest. He took rest, and we made in his image, and we not being God, how much more so than should we be kind to ourselves and make use of that? But every one of these commandments, every one of the ways that sort of uh, make and distinguish God's people as set apart, they're all to do with relationship and how we treat one another. I find that remarkable. And they're kind of simple commandments, thankfully. Again, they're all possible. Real simple, like stop lying to each other. Stop stealing from one another. Don't go around killing each other, please. Honor your mother, honor your father, and honor me as your God. All of these doable choices for us. In the Old Testament and the New, the way God seems to be calling his people is often depicted in terms of their treatment of others. And so too, we find this consistent call and example in our teacher, in our Lord. The rabbi who, as Sean said, whose dust we hope to collect on ourselves as we follow that closely behind him, Jesus. So what can we see of Jesus' holiness? It's interesting, the commandment is be holy, not the way you think holy is, but be holy the way I'm holy. And Jesus seems to be always our closest vision of what God is like, our best example. So how is Jesus holy? I thought I would uh, read a few examples here. We're going to start, well, we'll put the three up there. There are three moments where I think we can see Jesus standing apart, being set apart in a number of contexts. The first is going to be in John 8, 1 through 11. I'm going to read you the story here. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses said, we stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding answers of him. So he stood up and again said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote more in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest 
who had lived the longest and had probably collected the most sins in their life, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you in the end? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Can you think of a group of people in your life that are constantly ridiculed or mocked? Any person or group that, is, that make easy targets for ridicule? Groups you can use to score easy points with friends if you just hammer on them a bit now and then? The wide road is an easy road to walk, but narrow is the way that Jesus calls us to, a way of compassion and charity for others, a way of dignity and mercy, even and especially for those we don't think deserve it. Our next story comes out of Luke chapter 19, verses 1 to 11. It's about a tax collector, a, a classification of person in society that the ancient Jewish people would try to avoid at all costs, and I'm not entirely sure we love them all that much in our day, but I don't think we hate them quite as much. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacharias, Zacchaeus. Oh, I'm going to get that right, Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. And I have cheated, if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay it back Four times over. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. What a difference it can make to see the unseen and love the unloved. Who are some of the untouchables in your own life? Anyone you've hesitated to associate with because of what people might think of you if you did? I'm certainly guilty of this. Would you take flack from some of your friends or find yourself on the wrong side of your coworkers or peers if you eased up on some of the politically charged mockery that is increasingly dominating our culture? The wide road is an easy road to walk, but narrow is the way that Jesus calls us to, a way that insists on treating all people with dignity and charity, a way that sees all people as the beloved of God, people he loves so dearly he gave his life for their sake. And lastly, here an example from Matthew 4, 1 to 11. We see Jesus' set-apartness even in the battle that we all face uh, with the pressures of self-preservation and pride and obedience and all the rest of it. I'm going to read it here out of Matthew 4. This is the temptation of Christ. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, no joke. The tempter came to see him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, Throw yourself down. For is it not written, He will command his angels concerning you, 
and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. But Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you would but bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended to him. Have you ever had the experience of someone attacking your dignity, questioning your character, and before you knew it, you'd gone a bit too far with your reaction? Couldn't just let them talk down to you, after all. Surely all that turn-the-other-cheek business is just poetic and figurative, right? Nobody actually does that, do they? Have any of you been given power or authority over others in your workplace? Have you ever been tempted to misuse that power to make your life a little bit easier, maybe avoid blame? The wide road is an easy road to walk, but narrow is the way that Jesus calls us to, a way that anchors our security and our purpose in God and trusts that we don't need to prove anything to the world, a way of life that challenges us to trust the Lord and his commandments, even if it costs us something dear, to restrain our lusts and do battle with our pride. Jesus was very clearly set apart. He stood apart from his peers and the other religious leaders and even the common human experience in so many ways. I think we might underestimate how power just standing apart can be. In one sense, each of these examples that I've just shared with you had as much to do with what Jesus didn't do as they do with what he did. He didn't go along with the vengeful wrath and contempt of the crowd as they surged around the woman. They had turned a blind eye to their own sins in their hurry to condemn her for hers. He didn't close himself off from certain marginalized and undesirable segments of his society, choosing instead to welcome them just as he welcomed everyone else. He didn't give in to the temptation of the devil. He didn't look to his own comfort or his pride. Instead, he chose to trust and obey his heavenly father, as we are called to do. All of these wonderful moments involve choices any one of us could make if we chose. And indeed, every one of these choices we see in Jesus' life, we will be confronted with again and again in our lives. Moments when we can choose to stand with the world, stand with our passions, our lusts, our sinful desires, or choose to stand apart. To live as people set apart, holy people. And when people stand in holiness, it's hard not to notice. There was a deeply formative moment in my junior high years. I, I lived in Memphis, Tennessee for uh, four years, um, junior high and then almost all of my high school years. And I went to a school where I was the minority, my first experience. A school of about 1,000 students, I think eight were white. So I was the hard minority there, and I had some experiences there that were rough. Things I'd heard about people having kind of on the other side of the relationship, but I had never seen for myself. And I remember distinctly one really hard moment that could have messed me up bad as a teenager. I was in a hallway, and I got cornered by six young men, all African-American, shoved against the locker, and they just started messing with me hard. It was going in a bad direction. And I, there's a moment burned into my memory, looking over the shoulder of one of the six boys to one of the proctors. The, there was some rough, violent stuff in the school, and so there were kind of security guards in the school. The security guard, also, also an African-American man, and he just stood there and watched. He didn't step in at all. So I was about to get beat, 
to a pulp, or at least I feared I would, when all of a sudden, a young African-American woman stepped in between me and six boys and would not let them come at me. <laughs> she didn't overpower them by force of you know, strength. She didn't beat them down. She didn't even call for more help. She just stood apart from the moment. And when I think back about that, I think, man, that could have really turned me in an unfortunate direction, you know, in terms of race relations and my conception of an entire segment of America. And for, for reasonable reason, right? The only bad experiences I'd ever had in my life at that point were at the hands of a certain group that looked a certain way. And then one member of that community steps in and shows more courage. <laughs> that was not supposed to make me that emotional. <laughs> more courage than I think I'd ever seen in my teenage years, and set me straight. You know, she saved me from more than a beating that day. She saved me from uh, getting twisted inside. And all she did was stand apart. All she did was resist the pressure and the urge of what was going on in that moment in the midst of, this was during the OJ years, some real serious racial tensions. She stood apart from it uh, and probably saved me you know, from a bad way of life there. To be holy is to be set apart, to stand apart from the ways of the world, to stand on the narrow way, as tempting and easy as it is to end up on the wide path. As God commands his people to be holy, he is asking us to do only the possible before us. But that doesn't mean that what he's asking us to do is easy, certainly. In fact, as paradoxical as it may sound, I don't believe we can actually succeed at what is possible for us without the presence of this Holy Spirit in our lives, and the process of formation that he's calling each of us through. That process is often referred to as sanctification or spiritual formation. We're going to talk about that more in the weeks ahead. We like to talk about the Christian journey in terms of three contexts. We, we have a triangle. I didn't think to put it up here today. I probably missed a slide cue here. Let me just make sure I haven't. Nope, we're not there yet. We think of life in terms of the journey upward, our devotional life with the Lord. This includes prayer, quiet time, reading of the word, worship. We think of the journey in terms of the inward context. That's here. That's right here. Intimate community of believers where there's safety and security and there's a common buy-in where it's an easier place to develop and be vulnerable. But we also think in terms of the outward part of the journey outside of these doors in the city a city full of people who God loves so much that he gave his only son for. These are all contexts where God forms us and shapes us and calls us to be set apart in different ways. And over the next three weeks, we're going to spend a Sunday on each of those ways and talk about what it looks like to follow Jesus in each of those contexts. But now we're going to have communion together, which uh, we do in remembrance of one of the ways Jesus stood apart in one of the most profound possible ways. He was not a sinner and so should not have been punished for sins that were not his own. But he stepped up and took the hit for all of us, standing apart for our sake so that we would not be destroyed by our journey on the wide path. We do this by coming forward down the center row together. We're going to partake of these delicious communal crackers and we're going to dip them in the wine, non-alcoholic wine. And as you take the element, hang on to it, and we're going to go outside 
the outer lanes here just so we don't have a tra traffic collision. Once everybody has the elements together, we'll partake as a family. So now please feel free to come forward. So what you hold in your hand is representative of the body and blood of Christ, broken and shed for us. The bread representative of his body, the wine of his blood. He shared this moment um, to represent these things to his disciples before his death, uh, crucifixion and resurrection. Um, so we do this in remembrance of him, but also as an invitation for a real encounter with the Holy Spirit in our midst. There's a mystery here in this sacrament. The church has always believed that the Lord is with us in this moment in a very real, substantive way. If you need someone to stand with you today, uh, for any reason at all, anything to do with today's message or just anything going on in your life, after we partake, I invite you to come forward. We'll have some people here to pray for you, um, people who would love to pray for you. It's not a burden. Uh, I hope that if there's any nervousness or anxiety about stepping forward and sharing the hard things of life, uh, you'll be bold and you'll step forward and show those things. We would love to stand with you. You are not alone in these places, and we'd love to tell you how the Lord loves you through them. We'll partake here together. If you'd all stand, I'd love to pray with us as we go out the door. I was captivated by the chorus of one of our worship songs, considering the message here today, so I just want to pray that over us as we leave. Holy Lord, there is no one like you. There is none beside you. Open up our eyes in wonder of your presence and your provision in our midst as we head out into the world. Show us who you are. Fill us with your heart and your love. And lead us into the city this week, set apart to love those around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.